This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how students are reacting to the return to in-person learning this month. One little girl said, and there's not a dog at my door all the time when I'm in school. We'll have more on that, plus the latest on the vaccine rollout in Northern Colorado. And we'll hear more about Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's path to Congress and how things have been going in her first few weeks in office. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. More than 82,600 Coloradans have been fully vaccinated against coronavirus, with hundreds of thousands more waiting to get their second dose. Vaccination data is somewhat incomplete, but racial inequities are already beginning to show, with Black and Hispanic people receiving doses in numbers well below their population share. Community health providers like Salud Family Health Centers are on the front line of vaccine distribution in Colorado. So we reached out to Salud CEO John Santa Stephen to get an update on how things are going. John, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you for the invite. So Salud is currently giving vaccines to people 70 and older in 10 communities across the state. What's your sense of how that's going? Is the distribution at all like you expected? It's going very well. You know, naturally, the distribution is uh, based on the availability of vaccine. And, you know, that goes up from week to week. You know, I know the state of Colorado only gets a week's notice of what their vaccine allocation is going to be. And we receive about five days notice of what ours will be the next week. So it does make some challenges in planning, staffing, and, you know, scheduling those vaccines. But uh, overall, it's going well. How do you help the communities you serve wrap their heads around that supply uncertainty? Yeah, we just continue to keep communicating. Our goal is to vaccinate as many individuals as possible, but that is, again, based on the vaccine availability. So we keep getting that message out to our community partners to help us spread the news. And I'm curious what that might look like. How are you out in the communities talking to people about the vaccine? We're going out to local churches, um, giving them information about the safety of the vaccine. And when we are hosting vaccine clinics, going to senior centers, going to local health departments and providing them that uh, information. It sounds like it's really based a lot on very one-on-one person-to-person communication. Yeah, it's amazing sometimes when we're holding a vaccine clinic and at the end of the day, maybe we have 10, 15 slots open and we call a couple of people and word of mouth gets out and we have no trouble filling those slots in a very short period of time. Now, have all of your staff been vaccinated? About 70% of our staff have been vaccinated and uh, about 30% declined to be vaccinated. Do you have a sense of why some are not willing to get the vaccine? I think it's the general mistrust in the vaccine, you know, how quick it came to market and does it really work and overall is it safe? I know there are polls out showing that people in rural communities and um, people of color are more likely to say they don't want the vaccine or don't trust it. I'm wondering what Salute is doing to deal with vaccine hesitancy in the communities it serves, which includes these groups. A lot of it is our outreach efforts. We're doing interviews like this today on television, radio stations, on getting public announcements out, um, using social media. We got flyers out and uh, information on our website about the 
safety of vaccine and really just helping our community members, getting them information that the vaccine is safe and helping them to share that with the general public. Because I really do think it's going to take a whole community to convince as many individuals that this is safe. If healthcare providers like Salud can't convince their own staff that the vaccine is safe and is worth taking, I'm wondering how confident you are that these communities can be convinced to get the vaccine. It's definitely a challenge. You know, we start every morning at seven o'clock um, talking about our outreach efforts and how we're going to vaccinate as many individuals as possible. And this is probably the number one topic that we discuss every morning about how do we improve our outreach efforts and making sure we're reaching our goals of reaching out to that population base. So we're going to have to continue to work, but it, it, it is a challenge. Well, we have talked about issues with supply and also information about the vaccines. The state has identified issues with people getting transportation to and from their appointments. What other logistical issues could people be experiencing when they're getting vaccines from Salud or or wherever they're going to get it? There's a lot of challenges for the vulnerable populations. You know, one is developing a registration system that simultaneously identifies vulnerable and underserved potential vaccine recipients and still being open to the general public. Um, You know, systems can be confusing with the technology and using portals and such to get registered. Sometimes little information in a person's native language. And so in transportation is a, is a key barrier that uh, is really hard to overcome. Over the course of the pandemic, we have seen people of color getting sick at a disproportionately high rate with COVID-19. Those same groups are now getting vaccinated at a disproportionately low rate. Why do you see this as happening? you got to make a concerted effort to reach out to that population base um, that is vulnerable. If they're just in the overall health care system, our history shows that that population base doesn't have access to health care. Well, as we mentioned, data on who is getting vaccinated is a little bit incomplete because not all providers collect race data on the people that they vaccinate. Does Salute collect that data from the people getting vaccinated? And I'm, I'm curious why or why not? Currently, we don't collect that information. We um, really try to balance out our outreach to the vulnerable population and still being open to vaccinating the general public. And so that definitely is a balancing act. Salute certainly isn't the only provider not collecting that information. Do you think having that data even matters? Yes, I do. Otherwise, we won't know whether we're achieving our goal of having an equitable distribution of the vaccine. And I think the governor's office recently is talking about collecting that information. And finally, how well do you think the state is handling the disparity in who's getting vaccinated? I think the state is doing a really good job. They're in constant communication with community health centers. I know they set up a vaccine equity task force that Salute participates in. And, you know, just realizing that we got to make that concerted effort to have that equitable distribution is a great first step. And they're continuing to work on it. So we'll continue to work uh, closely with the governor's office and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. John Santa Stephen is the CEO of Salute Family Health Centers. The centers are currently vaccinating adults 70 and older across much of northern Colorado. You'll find a link to their website, and you can also get some more factual, up-to-date information about COVID-19 vaccines at our website, KUNC.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert's partisan pageantry has drawn the ire of people across the nation. But will her divisive politics thrive in the post-Trump era? 
KUNC's Robin Vincent has more on Boebert's path to Congress and how things have been going in her first few weeks in office. 34-year-old Lauren Boebert stunned political observers last summer when she beat incumbent five-term congressman Scott Tipton in the Republican primary. She was able to pull off an upset that, by the way, had not been done in Colorado since 1972. That's Dick Wadhams, a former chair of the Colorado Republican Party. He points out her opponent was endorsed by former President Trump. So how did Boebert pull it off? Yeah, a lot of it was style. I mean, Lauren Boebert is young. Scott Tipton is in his mid-60s. More notably, Wadham says Boebert employed combative rhetoric and didn't campaign much on her conservative-leaning district's central issues. Water, public lands, mining, oil and gas. Colorado's third congressional district covers the western part of the state and hooks into the southern parts of the Front Range. It's a diverse place, home to glitzy ski resorts like Aspen and Steamboat, sprawling public and agricultural lands, and a historic steel mill in Pueblo that's seen tough times. In all, folks here face the economic challenges endemic to rural communities. Still, Boebert focused largely on things like gun rights. Even before she announced her candidacy, she made news when she confronted presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke at a 2019 campaign rally in Aurora. Regarding hell yes, we're going to take your AR... I am here to say hell no, you're not. Later, she defied public health orders meant to slow the spread of COVID-19 and reopened her restaurant in Rifle, Colorado, where her waitstaff carries sidearms. During her first week in Congress, she released an ad declaring she'd carry a firearm in the nation's capital. And she got in a standoff with Capitol Police when she set off a metal detector and refused to let cops check her bag. Wadhams hopes she'll pivot more to local concerns. But he laments she's been the target of sexist and elitist attacks through it all. And frankly, Democrats who I respect have made fun of her because she didn't have a college degree. I got news for those Democrats. That's their problem around the country. There are a heck of a lot of people, blue-collar workers without college degrees, and that was part of the Trump constituency. Boebert says she dropped out of high school to help support her family, taking a job as assistant manager at a McDonald's. She says she felt empowered by that first paycheck and wants to empower others on a path to self-reliance. Carrie Donovan isn't convinced. The Colorado Democratic state senator is already considering a run for Boebert's seat in 2022. She's boiling a district that has important problems down to divisive language and how many retweets she can get in a day. In one such tweet, Boebert disclosed House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's location during the Capitol insurrection. Since then, the freshman lawmaker has introduced three bills in Congress. They take aim at President Biden's moves to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord and World Health Organization and to implement a federal mask mandate. University of Denver political scientist Seth Maskett says Boebert has taken a page from Trump's playbook in her political approach. It's using every moment to try and stoke a lot of outrage without necessarily trying to change the country in some way. And in another similarity to Trump, critics are concerned about Boebert's potential ties to extremist groups. A 2019 photo depicts her standing with people flashing a three-finger sign for the far-right militia movement, the Three Percenters. And a new video shows Boebert being gifted a custom Glock 22 from a man who appears to be wearing a three percenters patch. 
Bobert's take on QAnon has also set off alarms. Here she is speaking to a conspiracy theorist talk show host last year. Everything that I've heard of Q, I hope that this is real because it only means America is getting stronger and better and people are returning to conservative values. Rutgers University professor Jack Bradditch studies conspiracy theories. He points to QAnon's obsession to restore early America. For example, he says followers like to use the refrain 1776. That kind of ties into a certain version of nationalism tied to whiteness and settler colonialism. Among a number of Bobert's incendiary tweets before and during during the insurrection, she tweeted, today is 1776. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Officials with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are urging that students return to classrooms as soon as possible. They cite a preponderance of available evidence that in-person learning can be done safely as long as health protocols like mask wearing and social distancing are maintained. But writing in the journal JAMA, CDC researchers emphasize that state and local officials must be willing to enact limits on indoor dining and other settings to keep infection rates in check for the community at large. Many students in the Greeley-Evans School District are starting the second semester back in the classroom. District 6 announced a phased return to in-person learning over the month of January. High school students are following a hybrid model of both remote and in-person learning, while many K-8 through students are back at their desks. Deirdre Pilch is superintendent of Greeley-Evans District 6, and she joins us now to talk about what precautions the district has in place to safeguard students and teachers. Superintendent Pilch, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me. So you opened the school year last fall with the option for students to attend in person or go remote or do some kind of a hybrid. What did you learn last fall that's informing the return to in-person learning now? We learned a lot. (laughs) Uh, You know, we learned a lot. And that's really why we did this phased uh, approach to starting second semester. Um, One of the things that we struggled with in the fall was that once cases started to dramatically increase in our community, we saw a significant increase in our schools, or at least of probable cases. And because of the numbers of cases we were seeing, we were sending out so many students and staff that we just weren't able to manage in terms of our operations. We didn't have the staff we needed to run our programs and our schools. And quite frankly, our health services team couldn't keep up. So part of coming back slowly has been allowing you know people to transition back in. We can watch what the virus is doing and and really stay in front of it as much as possible, especially for our health services team. Do you have a sense of what the current numbers are now in terms of positive COVID cases in the district? You know, we were just looking, we're at fewer than 1% or somewhere maybe around 1% of students being positive right now in the school district. So it's still a very small number, but, you know, we're a large district. So, you know, that's 100 or so students who are likely positive or are positive, and and that has a big impact across our 33 sites when you include our charters. You know, we're watching those numbers. I will tell you that uh, what we are seeing, say, as opposed to like last September and October, is we're seeing actual test results. We had a harder time getting families to get their children tested in the fall and even to get staff tested. It was harder to get a test. It required that big 
deep stick up the nose and people didn't want to go through that multiple times and have their little kids go through that. So now we have a lot more testing available. We have testing available actually at some of our district sites and then a lot more testing available in our community. And it's testing that's not as invasive and it's more comfortable. And so we, you know, we're getting we're getting actual results. We're getting positives, but we're also getting negatives, which when we get a negative, that allows us to keep the cohort in school um, and just send the sick individual home. Obviously, testing is a big part of the strategy, but what can you say about health and safety measures that the district is following to help prevent the spread of COVID? Anything new or different from the fall? A little bit of more emphasis on a few things, Erin. We are really pushing for our staff to wear the KN95 masks and the eye protection. You know, the, the guidance is that if, if you're wearing that equipment, our possibility of having to quarantine you or of you getting sick are, are going to be a lot less likely. And so we really are pushing those KN95s and, and the eye protection. The other thing that we did is we set up a hotline where staff or anybody can call in if they find that people at their work site are not following the COVID precautions we've put in place so that we can get those addressed right away. We did a staff and parent and student survey last November, early November, and we learned a lot about what else, you know, the staff needed from us and parents and, and students needed. And so that helped us to, to make some of our adjustments that we've made for second semester. And how are teachers and staff uh, that you've talked with feeling, uh, you know, with the return of most students back to the classroom? Well, Erin, far more staff are, are excited to be back, are positive about being back. We just had a teacher in front of our school board last night, a high school teacher, thrilled to be back and really encouraging our board to bring our high schoolers back every day instead of just the two days a week. Um, so mo- most staff... Um, I think feel confident about being back. They are excited to be back. They're excited to have their students in their classroom. Most. I want to be fair that there are still some staff who who are very afraid and who are very concerned about them themselves getting sick or maybe taking the virus home to family members who are vulnerable. And so we're doing everything we can to work with those staff. But there are, you know, there are still a few staff who who are uncomfortable being back. And I, I think that's just the reality with this virus. And it's probably the reality in every workplace. Sure. I know we talked about some potential staffing issues before, especially with substitute teachers Mm -hmm. and also with bus drivers. Have you seen any problems here? Yeah, of course. I mean, all of us are struggling with substitute teachers and bus drivers. And I think then you put a pandemic on top of it and it, you know, it's just one more reason to maybe not come in and be a substitute teacher. So we've done some things to counteract that. We really are not pulling teachers out of the classroom. So we're not creating reasons to have to have substitute teachers in the classroom. Um, And then, you know, the other reality is that, and I know I I think probably a couple of our schools right now, uh, they're just, they'll just send home the whole grade level and all of the teachers for that grade level because they've got, you know, four teachers quarantined and they can't offer, you know, they can't get four subs. So, you know, we just know that's part of what we have to do. Uh, We've also sent district personnel over district administrative personnel over to cover in buildings, to cover in offices, and to cover classrooms to try to to help with that that absence of substitute teachers. But it's, you know, we're so grateful for the subs that who we do have and the ones who continue to come almost every day. And there are those. I mean, we're so grateful for them. And yet, we also know that, you know, many of our subs were a little bit older. And so a lot of those folks did not come back to sub. And I think the same with some of our bus drivers. You know, those who were older and at risk, I think, decided it just probably wasn't worth the risk to be here. Deirdre Pilch is superintendent of Greeley Evans District 6. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Erin.
For students in Denver Public Schools, the return to in-person learning came after more than a year of mostly learning online. And so last week, the DPS school board invited a handful of students and parents from the state's largest school district to share their thoughts on the move back. Chalkbeat Colorado's Melanie Asmar sat in on that virtual meeting and is with us now to share what she heard. Hey, Melanie. Hi, how are you? Good. Tell us more about the students that were on this call and what they had to say after going back to their schools. So the the Denver School Board spoke with a bunch of fourth and fifth grade students who headed back to school here in January. And I would say that a lot of the students said they really love being back in person. They get to see their friends. Several of them talked about how it's like easier for them to concentrate on their schoolwork in school because the teachers like right there to help them or they see like all the other kids around them working. And so they're motivated to work as opposed to to being at home. And one little girl said, and there's not a dog at my door all the time when I'm in school. (laughs) Um, That makes me wonder what kind of safety measures are in place. Obviously, it's great for these students to get back and and see everyone, but we're still in a pandemic. What is DPS doing to keep people safe? You know, what, what Denver's doing is a lot of the same stuff that a lot of districts across Colorado are doing. So like temperature checks and health checks at the door. They're requiring masks to be worn, you know, frequent hand washing, um, a lot of hand sanitizing. Denver also over the, the summer, last summer, upgraded their air filters in all of their schools to like a higher air filter rating. It's still not quite as good as like a hospital air filter, but it's, it's better than what was there before. And then they also have like quarantine procedures in place for if a student or a teacher does get sick, everyone that student or teacher came in contact with um, goes home for a certain period of time and they can't come back until that time period is over. Well, I want to talk about teachers in just a moment, but first let me ask about parents. They were also on this call with DPS. What did you hear from them about the return to school? A lot of thanking the district, a lot of relief that students are back in school. You know, they said their kids seem happier. And when they pick them up, their kids like can't wait to tell them all about what they did at school. And a lot of like, I would say cautious optimism. A lot of the parents said like, it's so great. We can do this right now. We're crossing our fingers that we can stay in school. So I think the parents, you know, are realistic that if, if cases go up, this isn't going to last too long. Let's get back to teachers then. Obviously a key piece in this whole equation. And there's been some back and forth over the last few weeks over who should get the vaccine and when. What can you tell us about where things are at now? Can teachers get the vaccine? So teachers cannot get the vaccine right now. There has been a lot of back and forth and a lot of confusion, as you said. Back in December, the governor did kind of move the teachers up in the vaccine line but he moved them up into the group that is getting vaccinated right now, but there's this dotted line within this group. And so there's folks who are above the dotted line and folks who are below the dotted line and teachers are below that line, which means they must wait until like a certain percentage of the people above the line get the vaccine. And those people include like healthcare workers, uh, first responders like police and firefighters, and also Coloradans over the age of 70, which is obviously a huge group of people. And what about other school staff able to get the vaccine? Yes, so some school staff do fall into that group that's above the dotted line. And these are people who are like related to the medical field. So school nurses, health technicians, even people like school psychologists 
and school safety staff. So a lot of middle and high schools have campus security guards and they are considered first responders. And so they're above that dotted line. So there are people like in Denver, for instance, it's about 10% of the district staff that kind of fall into those quasi-medical categories that are getting vaccinated right now. Well, Melanie, before we let you go, January proved to be the month that many districts would return to in-person classes. What are you going to be watching in the next few weeks as we kind of see where all this goes? I think the biggest thing that I'm wondering, and um, also as a a parent of a kindergartner myself, is how long is this going to um, sustain? Like, how long are schools going to be able to stay open? The state did make some, some changes in the late fall to kind of you know, make it easier for schools to stay open, including like shortening that quarantine window. So if I'm a teacher and I was exposed to COVID at school, I would have to quarantine under the old rules for 14 days. They've now shortened that to like seven days if I get a test and I test negative, which means like you need staff to run schools, right? And a lot of schools were shutting down in the fall just because all their teachers were quarantined. And so there are new rules in place to kind of free up some of those staff to come back if they test negative for COVID. And so wondering, you know, if those rules are going to make a difference and if all of us in Colorado can keep cases low enough to keep kids in school. Melanie Asmar is a reporter with Chalkbeat Colorado. Melanie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll explore how Biden administration policies may affect jobs in Weld County. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced with help from Adam Reyes and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.